0: Hey guys, welcome to the fourth episode of a Tap on the Wrist podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And we are very excited that you're joining us again. When do you think we should stop saying what episode number it is? Sorry, we're having this discussion Mm -hmm. live on. Never. Never, just Mm -hmm. we'll be up to episode like 128. Mm -hmm. Welcome to
1: 128. Mm -hmm. That'd be in like three years. (laughs) Yes, well, I hope we're still counting at 128.
0: I hope so. So last week we forgot to add our intro music. We realized after it posted.
1: It was a crazy week.
0: It was, but we're gonna add it this time. I hope. I hope, I hope you've we remember already after listened. this. <laughs> I hope you've already heard the <laughs> intro music play,
1: and that we and if don't not, forget again. You know what? We'll try again next week. <laughs> <laughs> There's always next week. We'll get it right by episode Mm 120-something. You saying
0: 120-something made me think about Pokemon again.
1: Oh, God. How many many weeks in a row are we bringing Pokemon up? I think I sent this to you. There are over 800. Yes, you did. You sent me the link. You screenshot it and sent it to me. And I just, who knows all 800 Pokemon? If you know even half of the 800 Pokemon, please send us an email.
0: Yes. I'm so Mm. curious to know. We'll figure something. We'll
1: we'll congratulate you somehow. We'll get a (laughs) sticker when we make them. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I just, that's an abnormal amount of Pokemon. Yeah,
0: apparently it's the normal amount.
1: (laughs) I just don't know how, what do they all do? What what do 800 different animal creature things do? (laughs) Animal creature things? (laughs) Isn't that what they are? I guess. Because the humans catch them, so they're all, like, animal creatures. Yeah, you gotta catch them all. Yes. How do you catch 800 creatures? You need 800 ball things. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> we need to stop. We're, like, making ourselves seem like such idiots. <laughs> uh, I think I need a drink. Yeah, let's let's drink and talk about drinking. Let's
1: do this. Okay, so our theme for this episode is Rum Runners. And I did a little bit of Googling, and I found a pretty crazy story about a speedboat chase. Oh. That also With involves the rum? rum Runners. <laughs> no, no, no. It's like real Rum Runners Prohibition style, but they call it a speedboat chase, which is hilarious because the boat was not moving anywhere near today's speedboats.
0: I know. I was like trying to think that through. It was like, <laughs> did they have speedboats
1: back then? They Well, they had... The fastest boat would be a
0: speed boat, I guess. <laughs>
1: but so we're going to start out with a guy his name is Charlie Travers. He was born in 1906. He grew up in like the northeast area and he was an avid fisherman, always on the water, always, you know, like loved fishing and water. He's also a really good mechanic, knew how to fix like boat engines and things of that nature. And You know, not so good at school. Mm -hmm. And so what he did is at a pretty young age, not exactly sure what age, nothing I found said how old he was, but he lied about his age and he enlisted in the Coast Guard.
0: I'm going to say he was 15.
1: Well... The problem, so I don't know how long one serves in the Coast Guard. Right. They do know when his enlistment ended. Okay. Okay, which was in 1924. Okay. He was only 18 when it ended. Oh, okay. So I don't know how old he was when it started, but he was much younger than 18.
0: (laughs) No, I'm picturing him as like a seven-year-old. Like, sign me up, sir.
1: (laughs) Sir, I'd like to protect the water, sir. (laughs) Uh, I don't know why it's a British, <laughs> but, but, but seven-year-old Charlie Travers <laughs> joins the Coast Guard, and at this time, so in the early nineteen twenties, the United States is uh, in Prohibition, right. and one of the Coast Guard's biggest jobs at the time is catching rum runners yep. and so he gets a lot of experience with like the rum running business he working on the coast guard gets even more experience working on boats and in the water and so he,
0: while on the coast guard he learns how to become a criminal
1: Yeah, <laughs> true fact but one thing that they did note is that his enlistment in the coast guard was at the same time as like The technology of boat engines. So he, like the Coast Guard, when he started, these boats are powered by oars and like human manual labor. And by the time he leaves, it's like small gasoline engines. And so obviously the Coast Guard is also, you know, saving people on wrecked boats and protecting Uh the waters. And, you know, rum running. Ending well, rum catching, running. catching 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 <laughs> yeah the coast guard is not doing the rum well, running you never know yeah they probably were too and so when his enlistment ends in 1924 he kind of goes back to regular life his um, dad owns a fish market and so him and his brother go out fishing and catch fish they go lobstering and you know they live across the street from the fish market life is pretty like Normal. Yeah. And he starts to think about it, and he's, like, reliving his days in the Coast Guard and all that he learned. So, however, at the time, the way the rum running business worked, it was pretty organized. Uh-huh. And the United States had this law in the United States. You couldn't sell, transport, or purchase alcohol. However, that law did not pertain once you were three miles out of U.S. waters. Yeah. So how, you know, it worked is these boats would come in full of illegal alcohol and small ships would run from U.S. waters out to these big boats, load up on illegal alcohol, and come back in. And so that's how all of, not all, the majority of alcohol got into the United States during Prohibition. Right. So it was nicknamed Rum Row, mm-hmm. and these boats would go on up, make their purchases, and, like, dart back as fast as they could and the Coast Guard knew exactly what was happening, right? And so they would patrol those waters, and every once in a while they would catch a boat on their journey back to the United States, um, all the booze. huh? With all the booze. With all their booze, and so in an effort to protect their like cargo, it was so fascinating reading about this. the The rum runners would tie the bottles together on a rope, and then like. Drop it in the water and it would like sink, mm-hmm. but it'd all be attached to a rope so they could easily come back and find it right once they outran the coast guard like the next day or a couple hours later. And so, every once in a while, fishermen like Charlie and his brother who were out doing their lobstering for the day would come across a drop location and like find this illegal alcohol and be like, like Win, it's a freaking <laughs> really day, yeah. And he starts to realize, like maybe that business could be a little bit more lucrative. Like, maybe he should get in the rum running business because, you know, he'd make a lot more money, still be on the water doing what he loves, but it'd be more lucrative. And he'd be making people happy. Yeah, it it would. (laughs) It It just would. So in 1927, so it's three years after he's out of the Coast Guard, he buys a boat in Massachusetts and he the boat is called the black duck and so on this boat it is has again i i'm not a car person so i'm not going to know what this means but it has um two v12 liberty aircraft engines producing 300 horsepowers each which is real fast at the time
0: (laughs) uh, horsepower sounds like it's fast to me
1: yeah. So he buys this boat and then with his knowledge of mechanics, he ends up actually making it even faster than it was when he bought it. And at the time, the Coast Guard is kind of working with mediocre boats. They they were given, and so we're talking this area that the Coast Guard is um, protecting is between New York and Boston. Mm-hmm. It's the largest area of this rum row business. And so that's where the Coast Guard is patrolling between New York and Boston waters. And they got all of these boats after World War I from like the Navy, so it's boats that weren't good enough for the Army anymore, they would give to the Coast Guard and they would fix and patch them up. And that's what the Coast Guard was using to patrol the waters. Mm -hmm. So the Black Duck that Charlie bought and then made even better was significantly faster than anything the Coast Guard had at all.
0: This sounds like Fast
1: and the Furious Boats. (laughs) Right. But, like, not super fast boats. I don't like... Today, they would be, like, sailboats. But I just, like, am
0: thinking of the scenes where they're, like, modifying the
1: cars (laughs) to make them,
0: insanely fast. Now this guy looks like Vin Diesel in my mind. (laughs) Keep
1: keep going with that (laughs) image. Okay, so he's got his modified uh, boat, and he's doing his thing. And so the Black Duck would go up to Rumrow, purchase alcohol, and he would outrun any of the Coast Guard boats as he was coming back into the New England area. And He was making so much money and everyone wanted him to be their run runner because he was the fastest and he never got caught Mm -hmm. and it was kind of infamous the coast guard knew of the black duck like they knew if they saw him they weren't going to catch him they knew that he was always going to get away yeah so he kind of became like this infamous guy to find right when they were patrolling and so what happens um is on december 29th 1929 It's about 2 a.m. And the Coast Guard is sitting. They're waiting. It's right out, like, in Rhode Island, uh, Narragansett Bay. And it's a foggy night. Mm -hmm. And everyone's just sitting. Coast Guard's chilling. They're waiting to, like, go after some rum runner. Right. Or save someone. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And all of a sudden, like, the stories go that they see A boat approaching them and the Coast Guard officer his name was Cornell he knew instantly that it was the black duck and he was like we have to get him even though they've never caught him before they were like we have to do this like he had been outwitted so many times they like Mm -hmm. he was catching the black duck this night so on the decks of the black duck were 383 packages for the upcoming New Year's celebrations. Like he, oh it was yeah, a, it was
0: right in time for New Year. It was like
1: a big load right. coming into New England just in time for the holiday. And so what the Coast Guard does, and there are conflicting stories to this night. The machine gunner on board the Coast Guard boat 290 finds the stern of the Black Duck and just opens fire on this boat. And... Charlie, who's driving, tries to, like, get away as fast as possible, but his boat is hit, and he's on the boat with three other men who, like, instantly are killed. Like, oh, damn. they're just shot by the Coast Guard, and they're killed, and he is also shot, but not killed, and then all of a sudden, the Coast Guard boat pulls up, they board his ship, they arrest him, they seize his alcohol... And, like, Cornell, the Coast Guard officer, is, like, victory. Like, we got the black duck. You know, he's living it. And he reports the next day to media, like, we're very sorry that this happened, that these men had to lose their lives. We'd have given anything not to have these deaths occur. Uh And Charlie Travers' story of that night is very different. Um, So, like like, the Coast Guard says that They announced who they were, told the Black Duck to stop, that they were going to come aboard, and the Black Duck, like Charlie driving, turned around and sped away. Mm -hmm. And that's why they opened fire. But when they did the investigation, that's not the case. Like, all the bullet holes were at the front of the boat. Like, they weren't speeding away from the Coast Guard. They were coming at the Coast Guard. So, Charlie Travers, who... (laughs) This isn't funny, but his only injury, he lost a thumb. He was shot in the thumb. That's so weird. And lost a thumb. I know. And he said, them three fellas were damn fine boys. I'm just sorry for them. That's all. They didn't give us a chance. Not a chance. And they were right on us. And so it's two very different stories. Right. It reminds me kind of like a lot of the stuff we hear today. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, did they open fire too soon? Like, Kind of sounds like it. Yeah, it does. It does sound like it. And to the public, they take sides with the Black Duck and Charlie Travers.
0: I mean, also he was bringing them their alcohol. Well, and
1: that's what it was. Everyone was just so over prohibition, right? And they were like, "Oh my God, this law needs to just end." And so they definitely sided with Charlie and the Black Duck, and it kind of became like a symbol of. The failure of prohibition. Right. So they were like, it's not working. Innocent people are losing their lives. And the Coast Guard is like, hey, they're not innocent. They were bringing in alcohol illegally.
0: Mm-hmm. And the
1: citizens are like, but we want the alcohol. Yeah, they were
0: like, shut the fuck up. We yeah. Want- <laughs>
1: so what happens on January 1st, 1930, so it's like two or three days later, Cornell, the Coast Guard guy, uh-huh. gets a letter from to his house, and it is addressed to Mr. Cornell, the Hun, <laughs> and it warns him not to come ashore since death is waiting for you and your crew. Oof. And then two days later, on January 3rd, a meeting is held in Boston, and it's a giant protest, 1,100 men... Uh, or. It's a meeting where they claim that 1,100 men and women and children have been killed in the Rum War. So they're just saying, like, we need to end prohibitions, not a war on alcohol. Like, let's all, you know, come to an agreement. And after that meeting, part of the mob was so, like, angry and, like, pumped up on adrenaline, they attacked the Coast Guard recruiting station. And, like, a bunch of property owned by the Coast Guard was vandalized. And then four days later, on January 7th, 20 men attacked Cornell's houseboat while it was docked. So, like, this is, again, the Coast Guard guy. So now his houseboat has been attacked. Uh, He's been threatened, his life of him and his family. So it's not really going so well for him. No. He thought he was going to be, like, a big... Like, camera, like but, I finally caught you. Yeah, it didn't. But not so you know. much. So his boat was in the Connecticut area. So now, I mean, it's not just people in Rhode Island or people in Boston. Like, this is the whole, like, New England area. They're right. all rioting against him in this. And so, um, thankfully, no one was hurt. Like, Cornell wasn't even home. His wife and his five children were home. But they but they then. weren't home. Yeah. Um, you know, the windows were all shattered with rocks and stuff. I'm but, sure
0: it was very scary. I
1: yeah, I'm sure yeah. it was. Okay, so this entire episode of the the black duck and Charlie Travers losing his thumb um, becomes one of like the main incidents that really helps to repeal prohibition. And so, four years later, on December fifth, nineteen thirty three, the twenty first amendment is signed uh, to the U S. or Const- er, the twenty first amendment to the Constitution is ratified which repeals the 18th Amendment and brings an end to the national ban on alcohol. Which we're so thankful for today. Hallelujah. <laughs> I mean, thank you, Charlie, for I your know. service. Thank
0: you, seven-year-old Charlie, for joining <laughs> the Coast Guard and learning this and then becoming Vin Diesel and...
1: Yeah. I mean, I just think it's funny. All the headlines about this story always call the black duck a speedboat. Uh-huh. But I think... It was, like, a
0: speedboat for the 20s.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, and they always... Like, today, it'd just be a boat. Well, and they always say that it was, like, a speed chase, like a speedboat chase, but, like, in everything I read, it really just seems like an altercation that happened. it seems like now
0: wanted it to seem like it was a chase.
1: Right, and there, I think there had been previous chases with the Black Duck on multiple other occasions. That's why it was so infamous. Yeah. But, yeah, so... I there, feel like
0: you don't know this, but is this Cornell somehow linked to this school, of
1: Cornell? I don't know this. <laughs> but of the people like, that comes from the Cornell family, or something. The the one and only, the one and only <laughs> Cornell family. I don't know. I mean, I, I part of me feels bad because he really was just trying to do his job. It but just he also sucks. Kills
0: people. I mean, not him, but
1: right. Yeah. But like, it sucks that his job was to do. It yeah. It it sucks when people have to like like their job is to do terrible things. <laughs>
0: yeah. Right, cuz like he could have just ignored it, but then that would have been like, oh, you're letting the rum runners get away with it to his superiors. Right.
1: But I guarantee you Cornell went home at night and had some moonshine in his house. Probably. Everyone did almost. Yeah. Like it was so ...regular business during Prohibition for people to drink.
0: Yeah, of course. Unless
1: they were super, super religious. It wasn't even a politics thing. It was just... Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, most men during Prohibition still drink. Right. So. But that's the
0: Black Duck. Nice. Okay, so I am going to be talking about William Frederick McCoy, who is better known as Bill McCoy... And I, of course, as always, got information from Wikipedia. I also got information from a Time article called The Top Ten Prohibition Tales and an article called Rum Runners Delivered the Good Stuff to American Speakeasies, which I got off the Mob Museum's website, which I've used before, and it's just a really cool source. And we've also been there. Yes, we have also physically been Mm -hmm. to the Mob Museum. It's in Vegas, and it's super cool, so you should definitely check it out.
1: Yes, it is a
0: must do in Vegas. It is. So, Bill McCoy was an American sea captain and a rum runner during Prohibition. And one of the reasons I found him interesting was because he considered him, himself to be an honest lawbreaker. Um, he never paid anyone off and he sold his merchandise unadulterated, uncut, and clean. Which wasn't super common back then. You know, a lot of people would water down the alcohol or adulterate it in some way. Right, trying to make more money. Right, for cheaper. And a random fact from Wikipedia is that John Hancock was his role model.
1: Don't know why. Oh, John Hancock, because, you know, that seems... beautiful signature. That's a very strange role model. I mean, obviously, he's... I aspire to sign things the way John Hancock did. (laughs) Well, I'm sure John Hancock did great things in his time, and we all only know him for his giant-ass signature. Right. So, I mean, I guess he could be a great role model. Yeah, yeah. I'm like,
0: I was like, is there somebody else named John Hancock? And I was like, no, there's no way. No.
1: There's there's (laughs)
0: only one. There's only one ever in existence. So, McCoy was born in Syracuse, New York in 1877. And at some point in his life, he attended the Pennsylvania Nautical School on board the then USS Saratoga in Philadelphia. I don't know why it says then, the then USS. Or maybe got renamed. Does they
1: changed the name.
0: <laughs> don't know what they changed it to. It is
1: now the John Hancock.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Named after
1: McCoy's <laughs> idol.
0: And he graduated first in his class in 1895. He later served as a mate and a quartermaster on various vessels, which obviously gave him a lot of experience at sea, which I'm sure came in handy when he became a rum runner later. I'm sure he did. <laughs> so around 1900, he and his family moved to Florida.
1: Oh, good to old date- Florida. Yeah,
0: yeah, your favorite state. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they moved to Daytona, and oh. the town was called Holly Hill. Holly Hill, Okay.
1: So I grew up in Daytona.
0: Yes, that's that's why why I bought it up for those listeners who don't know that. Yes, <laughs> and Holly Hill is
1: it is very close to Daytona. Yeah, it's like it's almost like a neighborhood in Daytona. Yes, you know it's you know it, yeah. This says north
0: of D- Daytona, but but maybe they're just exaggerating.
1: Well, I mean, yes, of like Daytona Beach proper, it would be okay. north. But, like, there's like a whole region of Central East Florida, like, the people say Daytona. Right. And it's, like, a bunch of neighborhoods. Okay.
0: So, while in Holly Hill, Bill and his brother Ben operated a motorboat service and a boatyard. And the service was in Holly Hill and in Jacksonville, so I guess they'd go back and forth between the two. And he also apparently built yachts on the side. <laughs> I guess. As you do. And he made yachts for some pretty important people like Andrew Carnegie and I didn't write this down, but I think it said the Vanderbilts. So he earned a really good reputation among some of the wealthy elite by building them yachts. But unfortunately, around the time of prohibition, Bill and his brother weren't doing as well financially and they lost their motorboat transport business. That was in Jacksonville because of the buses that started to come around in the early mm-hmm. 20s. So people preferred to go by land than yeah, by I sea.
1: And that makes sense.
0: Yes. So in order to make money, he decided he was going to start smuggling whiskey to the United States as one does.
1: That also makes sense.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so mm-hmm. he traveled from Nassau and Bimini in the Bahamas to... Up to the East Coast in the U.S. to Rum Row, which you mentioned in your story. So
1: he did the other side of rum running, though.
0: He did like like he the went country. and got it. it.
1: Oh.
0: So he went to the Bahamas and then physically brought the alcohol back to the United States. Interesting. And it specifically said he did a lot of dealing on Rum Row off of Jersey, as one does. That's you know, what you do in New Jersey, I guess. Everything's better in New Jersey. Is it? Um,
1: <laughs> That's what Hamilton taught me.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> so he provided quality name brand scotch and whiskey. Um, so the bootleggers on Rum were really impressed with him, and they started using a term that I had actually heard of and never known what it came from. They would call any like genuinely good liquor that was unadulterated the real McCoy, and I would mm-hmm. heard the term The Real McCoy before. Don't right. know where, don't know why, but I've heard it before, and it is because of his good practices with alcohol. Oh,
1: that's
0: fun. Yeah. So, after earning enough money, he bought his own schooner, which he named, oh man, I just looked this up, mm-hmm. Arethusa. Arathusa. That's what we decided, right? Yeah. I made Laura try to pronounce mm-hmm. it with me without knowing what she was trying to pronounce. I pronounced it
1: incorrectly.
0: <laughs> But we figured it out. So he placed it under British registry in order to avoid U.S. jurisdiction. Very smart. Which was, yes, a smart move.
1: He this this McCoy guy is very intelligent.
0: He is, and he and he's a, a honest man, an honest law ma- lawbreaker, not lawmaker. Yeah. <laughs> we need some of those. No, that's too
1: what Hancock <laughs> was.
0: <laughs> so he eventually renamed his boat that to. Tomoka, which is apparently a river. It is in Florida. Yep. Yeah, yeah he named it for the river in Florida. <laughs> and he also installed a machine gun on the deck in case he had to deal with, quote unquote, go-through guys. I don't know what that means. I guess like rough. Like the Coast rough Guard? Rough tough mobsters <laughs> or the Coast Guard. <laughs> I couldn't find any time he used it, though, because, you know, he's an honest lawbreaker. Right, right. He doesn't right. kill people that I know of. So, according to the Time Magazine article, by transporting $8 cases of liquor from the Bahamas to, they specifically said Martha's Vineyard, he'd make 300000 in profit each trip. So, a lot, lot of money.
1: $8 is what he spent in the Bahamas? Is that what you said?
0: Transporting $8 cases of liquor. Okay. So, he... Uh, never, okay. Got it. So, I don't know how much... Well, it's saying in profit, so he, whatever he paid, he still made $300,000 in profit. So, pretty, yeah. pretty good. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's more than I make in a year, so. <laughs> <laughs> During his time smuggling, he mostly hauled rye and then Irish and Canadian whiskey, as well as other fine liquors and wines. And he was incredi- He was credited for inventing the burlock, which the Coast Guard called the Very Creative Saxe. Just sacks. That's what they called it. And it was lighter than transporting wooden crates of alcohol. So, what he would do is he would cover six paper bottles, six not paper bottles. He would cover six bottles with paper. Then he would stack them in a pyramid shape. So, three, two, and one. He covered them in string and tied them up in a burlap sack. And that made it like more compact
1: and easy to travel with. And easier to hide. That's exactly what I was trying to talk about in my story. Like, that's how, that's what the drop location, like, if they dropped it, it Uh would sink. And they described all that, I just didn't tell you about it.
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, he apparently invented that. Well. And, and he, and, well, I don't know if he called it, but other people called it burlock. And the Coast Guard just called it sacks, because they were... Boring. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, I guard. mean they
1: literally were just sacks yeah. of beer. Yeah. So Oh sorry. Yeah, no, what were you saying? Well no, but like that's what that was the method I was that's what said, they was dropped cool. And they the would water. drop them if they were chased. Uh huh. And it would all be attached on a rope so that they could go back and find it later. Right. So I'm sure he did that at some point during his Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah.
0: So McCoy eventually became an enemy of the US government and of some organized crime peoples. And so he established a system, uh, which you talked about a little bit, of anchoring his ship off coast in international waters and selling the liquor to smaller ships that then transferred it to shore. So he would, he and other boats like him would have handwritten signs on the riggings that would show the names of the liquor and the prices. And McCoy was particularly pop- popular because of his fair prices. And because he offered free samples and a free case per order to paying customers. So he would, like, they'd, they'd get a free case of liquor. Right. Um, he was just, a, like, a trustworthy, nice guy. And according to Prohibition by Edward Baer, he described his ship as a floating liquor store with shells of samples for visitors. Tasting was encouraged. A swiveling machine, oh, a swiveling machine gun emplacement was proximity in view. Sorry, that last sentence was weird. Mm. But basically, he he just had a nice
1: store with, like, a tasting room. <laughs> right. So it's like people were afraid of him because of the machine guns. Yeah. They didn't <laughs> fuck with him. But they wanted to do business with him because he seemed like a honest guy. Yeah. Because, like, it's true. Like, if you can sample the product, you're going to be less hesitant that it's watered down or right. that, you know, maybe has been altered. Yeah. It's a good practice. Yeah.
0: So... On November 23rd of 1923, the U.S. Coast Guard <laughs> had orders to capture Bill McCoy and his Tomoka, even if it was in international waters. So Did they do that? that? I don't know, but that was their order, apparently. And so they spotted his schooner on Rumro, Rum so I guess he happened to be not on international waters when they caught him, because he was at Rumro. And being the good guy that he was, McCoy ordered his crew to sail away, and he surrendered to the Coast Guards to save them.
1: He seems like an upstanding guy, yeah. in my
0: opinion. But the Coast Guard, Coast Guard did fire a six-pound cannon shell at his vessel.
1: Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm rethinking my story now. Like <laughs> Coast Guard is not very innocent. Yeah.
0: Or at least they weren't back then. Who knows right now? Sorry. Yeah, Coast they're Guard. lovely now, I'm sure. So there are actually some quotes from him from some New York Times articles.
1: Wait, I want to take that back. They're probably not lovely because I'm sure they're involved in lots of...
0: Yes. I'm sure some of them are. I'm, yes. There's always good ones.
1: Yes. I don't want to offend anyone, but I also don't want people to yell at me. So. There's some good ones and some bad ones. I'm sure the Coast Guard is <laughs> guarding the coast. <laughs> I'm gonna just a neutral, that
0: neutral expression. <laughs> yes. In the New York Times article called Sea Rum Runner held on two liquor charges from November 27th, 1923, Bill McCoy said, "I have no te- I have no tale of woe to tell you. I was outside the 3-mile limit selling whiskey and good whiskey to anyone and everyone who wanted to buy it." Oh, so maybe he was still in international waters when they caught him. Yeah, Rum Row is international waters. Okay. So, Bill McCoy pleaded guilty to avoid a lengthy trial, and he spent 9 months in a New Jersey jail. After that, he returned to Florida, invested all the money he made in real estate, and he and his brother continued to build boats and travel up and down the co- the coast. And that is the story of Bill McCoy, the honest lawmaker. Lawbreaker. Why do I keep saying <laughs> lawmaker? It's because I know we need honest lawmakers.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting. I wonder, and like now I want to Google and find out if there are like places in my hometown named after him. Like, was he... You know what I mean? Like, well-regarded in right. that area. Because, I mean, Holly Hill, Tomoka, like, those are all very, very common to my hometown.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he seemed like kind of a stand-up guy. And uh, he just wanted to get people alcohol and, you know, make money because his business shut down because of those damn buses.
1: Man, damn buses. Right? Damn technology.
0: <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people say that about, like, podcast, Like, Rhea. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I'm sure alright guys it's time to talk about our cocktail or our bar of the week this week we are talking about a bar that we really like called Dutch Fred's
0: and it's located in Hell's Kitchen in New York and we were actually just reading a little bit about why the bar has it's name and it's apparently named after a policeman who I guess was nicknamed Dutch Fred or named Dutch Fred Seems like a nickname. Seems
1: like a nickname.
0: And a rookie said to him while they were in the Hell's Kitchen area, this place is hell itself. And Dutch Fred replied, hell's a mild climate. This is Hell's Kitchen. And the name stuck. So apparently the person they named the bar after named the location where the bar
1: is, which is kind of a cool, cool fact. It, I've always kind of wondered why Hell's Kitchen had that name. It's a really weird neighborhood name. Yeah. I mean, I always assumed it had something to do with it being so close to Times Square, and I consider that hell. <laughs> <laughs> don't we all, as New Yorkers? <laughs> so I thought it was like, oh, this is, you know, the kitchen to hell. Yeah. <laughs> because it's where all the food places and bars are, so yes. I thought that's why it was nicknamed that. But
0: I wonder if the food places and bars came after the name or before. I don't know.
1: But uh, Dutch Fred's is great. It's a good after work, hangout bar. And they specialize in craft cocktails. Mm-hmm. But we actually found it for one particular cocktail that we'd heard about, and we traveled there for this one cocktail. It's
0: called the Hogwarts Express. Woo! And I don't know that we've talked about the fact that we're really big Harry Potter fans. No, I think we've actually talked more about
1: Pokemon than <laughs> Harry Potter.
0: So we both love Harry Potter, which is why we decided to try this cocktail. It's really great. It's made with Irish whiskey, absinthe, Aperol, Poblano, lemongrass, lemon, and egg whites.
1: Which all sound very strange together, but it is quite tasty.
0: It's delicious. And then they put like a Harry Potter... Stencil. Stencil on top. Thank you.
1: So like there's like the egg whites that make it white and foamy. Mm -hmm. And then they do a stencil of... I feel like it's always been Ravenclaw. Well, when I got it last, uh, they had like...
0: It was just HP. Oh, Harry Potter. Yeah. But when I've gotten the house on it, it's always been Ravenclaw, which I am a Ravenclaw, so I enjoy that. But the the stencil tastes kind of like black licorice, so I was kind of like, take a picture and then move it off, because I'm not a black licorice fan, but the actual cocktail itself is really delicious, and you said that you had one that was called the Ginger Rogers, right?
1: Yes. That's what I had last time we were there. And in the Ginger Rogers is bourbon and ginger and velvet falernum and lime and grains of paradise. And it's a lot like a, like a mule, Okay, like, you know, ginger and bourbon and right. lime, um, but it's delicious. It's classy served in a, a metal glass, copper glass.
0: They also have a cocktail named Hell's Mild Climate, which now, in Mm -hmm. retrospect, knowing the story, Mm -hmm. is really funny and makes a lot of sense. So maybe I'll
1: try that one next time. Oh my gosh. Never mind, I can't tell you this yet, because it's a secret to a future episode.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were telling me that, but I guess you're telling the audience. (laughs) Well, I see now... Okay.
1: There is a cocktail called Dutch Courage, and... In the story that we are going to record now, which for you guys will be in a few weeks, that's in my story tonight.
0: Oh, wow. So. Something to look forward to. (laughs) That's so weird. Little Mm -hmm. Easter egg. Yes. Anyway, it's a great bar, and you guys should check it out if you live in New York or if you are visiting New York anytime in the near future.
1: Yes, it's in Hell's Kitchen. You won't forget it.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, that has been another episode a tap on the wrist find us on social media we're on instagram and twitter at a tap on the wrist and then we have our gmail which is tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com send us story ideas send us a list of 800 pokemon if you can mm-hmm. 400 is all i asked oh for. yeah sorry you asked for half <laughs> or send us what, recipe how- ideas send us for the podcasts. house rain yeah Tell us what Harry Potter has We need written. to start talking about Harry Potter, not Pokemon. We do. We're going to switch it up next, starting next week. Mm, okay. All right. Have and a please, good week. Oh. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Absolutely. Cheers. Cheers.